three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. This is Nuclear Knowledge. Production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Aloha and welcome to another exciting episode of the Nuclear Knowledge, a weekly show by the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. I'm your host, Curtis McGiffin, and I'm the Vice President for Education here at NIDS, as well as a co founder. And today's show is about command and control of nuclear forces. The lesson presented is my own and includes data and descriptions obtained from a multitude of DOD sources and government-vetted public sources. So let's get started. The need to command and control nuclear forces has existed since the Manhattan Project of World War II, which culminated in a single written letter on July 25, 1945, from General Thomas Handy, Acting Chief of Staff, relaying presidential orders for execution some 10 days later. By the mid-1950s and after the Soviets had detonated their atomic bomb, nuclear command and control timing had dwindled down to hours. And with the, the perfection of the ICBM in the 1960s, nuclear command and control was further reduced to about 30 minutes. Today, the time to react to a nuclear attack on the U.S. can be compressed to a window of 8 to 15 minutes, depending on the method and vector of attack. To learn more about this phenomenon, I recommend a 2019 article I wrote with my colleague, Dr. Adam Lowther, called America Needs a Dead Hand, which you can find on warontherocks.com. This trend of attack time compression is largely driven by technological advances, and necessarily complicates the demands for Nuclear Command and Control, or NC2. The Nuclear Matters Handbook of 2020 defines NC2 as the exercise of authority and direction by the Commander-in-Chief through established command lines over nuclear weapon operations by the President as the Chief Executive and Head of State. As noted in a recent Congressional Research Service defense primer, quote, the president has sole authority to authorize the use of U.S. nuclear weapons. This authority is inherent in his constitutional role as commander-in-chief. The president can seek counsel from appropriate military advisors. Those advisors are then required to transmit and implement the orders authorizing nuclear use. The president does not need the concurrence of the U.S. Congress to order the launch of nuclear weapons, and neither the military nor Congress can overrule those orders. The NC2 is supported by the Nuclear Command, Control, and Communication System, or something we call the NC3. The NC3 is a system of systems, a network of warning and communications architecture, processes, and people that ensure dedicated connectivity from the president to the nuclear-capable forces. The fundamental requirements of NC2 are that it must be assured, timely, secure, survivable, and enduring in providing the information and communications for the president to make and communicate critical decisions 
throughout the crisis spectrum. In short, NC2 is what needs to be done, and NC3 is how we do it. Now, it is crucial for both allies and adversaries to perceive the NC2 and the NC3 system as strong, long-lasting, secure, resilient, and able to survive a nuclear first strike. This perception plays a vital role in deterring potential threats or adversaries, providing assurance to allies, and maintaining strategic stability. NC2 and NC3 have always been crucial aspects of America's second strike capability, which guarantees a response to any nuclear attack and helps maintain the principle of mutually assured destruction. By convincing our potential nuclear adversaries that retaliation is inevitable, rational actors will be deterred from striking first and thus preventing the nuclear exchange. So the purpose of nuclear command and control is threefold. First, it's to ensure the organized, controlled, and coordinated procedure of the nation's guaranteed retaliatory threat, specifically in the pre-attack time frame. A fancy word for peacetime. Second, it is to ensure rapid, dependable, and survivable connectivity between the decision makers and forces under the worst conditions, specifically the, what we call the trans and post-attack conditions, essentially while bombs are falling and right after bombs have fallen. And the third purpose of nuclear command and control is to ensure positive control of nuclear weapons without compromising responsiveness. So let's go through each of these very quickly. So the first one, again, ensure the organized, controlled, and coordinated procedure for the nation's guaranteed retaliatory threat, specifically in the pre-attack time frame. The NC2 functions are linked by various systems within the National Military Command System, which enables the detect, decide, and direct NC3 process, also described in our America Needs a Dead Hand article. The NC3 system activates the NC2 through a network of systems including early warning sensors like radars and satellites, designated support facilities, fixed and mobile command centers, and individual command posts. These systems are connected through a network of landlines, internet connections, radios, and satellites. The process gathers and analyzes surveillance data, facilitates decision conferences, and disseminates emergency action messages to command the forces. The activation of the NC2 and NC3 systems is crucial for the functionality of America's nuclear bombers, ICBMs, and SLBMs, or sub-launched ballistic missiles. Without the NC2 and NC3, these weapons would be rendered useless, as bombers wouldn't take off, ICBMs wouldn't leave their silos, and SLBMs wouldn't leave their submarines if the president's ability to command and control nuclear forces were disrupted or severed. The NC3 system must be able to function effectively in all environments, including high-stress situations like nuclear attacks and situations involving jamming or electromagnetic pulses. This is essential to stabilize a crisis, deter attacks, and maintain the safety, security, reliability, and effectiveness of the strategic nuclear triad and its related operations. 
There are five critical mission essential functions for the NC2, and they fall neatly into the detect, decide, and direct construct. First is the detection, warning, and attack characterization, along with the dissemination of that information. The second is the planning for potential employment of nuclear weapons. The third is decision-making conferencing, which includes time-critical assessments, reviews, and consultation regarding the consideration of the use of nuclear weapons. The fourth is force implementation. It is the preparation, dissemination, reception, and authentication of presidential orders regarding the execution or termination of nuclear weapons. This would be launch orders or recall orders. The fifth is force management, which includes the training, maintenance, and deployment of nuclear forces and weapons before, during, and after any crisis. It is important to note that the NC3 system enables the performance of these five critical NC2 mission essential functions. So let's move on to the second purpose of NC2, and that is to remind you to ensure rapid, dependable, and survivable connectivity between decision makers and forces under the worst conditions, right? As bombs are falling and after bombs have fallen. So resilient, survivable, and effective NC3 enables feasible NC2 by ensuring that civilian authorities can employ nuclear forces against the target or series of targets in a timely manner and strengthens the military's ability to respond or retaliate even after suffering a nuclear attack or other forms of strategic attacks. The NC3 connectivity is maintained through a thick layer of systems that are available in peacetime to provide the day-to-day resources needed to support the daily national security requirements. These thick systems consist of varied secure and non-secure links that can move vast amounts of voice and data, but may not be hardened against all forms of kinetic or non-kinetic attack, including electromagnetic pulse. In the trans-attack period, that is while bombs are falling, this thick line of capabilities must gracefully degrade to an EMP-hardened and survivable thin line, a thin line architecture that safeguards assured, secure, unbroken, and enduring NC3 capacity for the president and senior leaders and their advisors to perform all necessary NC2 functions, even with reduced communication paths or capacity. This requires robust and modern architecture that can maximize the qualities of speed, capacity, and security while minimizing vulnerability, complexity, and cost. This NC3 system must service the daily demand without question while ensuring a minimally defined capacity is always available on the worst of days, guaranteed. This thin line is America's all-hazardous environmental insurance plan, something we must have. We wish we didn't have to pay for, but we can't go without. So the third function or purpose of NC2 is to ensure positive control of nuclear weapons without compromising responsiveness. Positive control is the ability to enable nuclear forces to be launched when the legitimate authority gives the orders. The corresponding negative control is the ability to inhibit accidental use or prevent unauthorized launch. The NC3 system must be able to transmit any legitimate launch order 
or launch termination order, while at the same time preventing any accidental or unauthorized launch order. Moreover, the positive and negative control aspects of NC2 and NC3 allow for the on-alert force posture that ensures the rapid response potential of our ICBM fleet. Positive control thus demands an inseverable connection with legitimate political authority. The NC3 architecture's integrity must be maintained daily to ensure the success of NC2. If the adversary doubts the NC3 system's ability to direct a retaliatory strike after an initial attack, America's deterrence threats will lose credibility. In summary, U.S. nuclear forces are under persistent and consistent command and control. Only the president can authorize a nuclear response, and the NC3 system is designed to facilitate that ability on any day to include the worst of days. Our ability to detect an attack, decide how to respond, and direct that response with rapid precision and without hesitation is key to maintaining peace and stability. The credibility of U.S. nuclear deterrence and the threat of guaranteed retaliation cannot, indeed must not, be compromised or questioned by the adversary, or they might decide they can get away with a first strike. I want to thank you for listening to today's Nuclear Knowledge Show. I hope you learned something new and valuable about deterrence. Nuclear Knowledge is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 5013C organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. This podcast is produced weekly, and each episode is released on Monday. I invite you to check out our other podcast, The Nuclear View. You can catch it and all of our other past podcasts on our website at thinkdeterrence.com. I thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informational nuclear knowledge. A production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies.